Amen. Thank you, Stephen, for that warm welcome. Uh, I did get to bring my wife with me this time, so I'm so grateful for the opportunity to come once again and share God's Word. And I don't generally do this, but uh, I could just ask that we would all just praise this praise team this morning for their effort in leading us into a time of worship. I don't know about you, but song really ministers to me. It leads me to the throne of God, helping me to be focused. What an awesome time that we have, not just to hear a great melody, not just to hear wonderful voices, but to hear theology in song. Great is thy faithfulness. And then singing before that, the creed, I believe in God our Father. I believe in the Son, Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. You see, if we really believe those type things, man, we're going to set the world on fire when we apply those beliefs out into our community that we live in. So I'm just grateful for God giving me the opportunity to come and share with you here this morning. I would ask if you would uh, open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter chapter 16, Acts chapter 16. And as you're turning there this morning in your copy of God's Word, the Holy Scriptures, I want to ask you, do you have the type of life that draws people to Jesus? Do you really have that type of life that draws people to Jesus, makes them maybe see Him in your life? Are you one of those that truly, as Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, you're the salt, you're the light, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, not good works that in any way bring us uh, in deserving right to have salvation. That comes only through God's grace, through our faith in Jesus. But let them see our good works so that they may glorify our Father in heaven. Do you have that type of life? Or, on the flip side, do you have that type of life that repels people from Jesus? You see, because I believe that every single believer, every single true, genuine, authentic follower of Jesus Christ, as we imitate Him in our life, we're going to draw people Make them hunger for Jesus. Make them thirst for Jesus just by living our life, being able to speak the truth of who Jesus is in our life. I pray that you're one of those that just draws people to Jesus. You see, I've met a few Christians before, those who claim to be followers of Christ, That if I were not already a believer, if I were not already a child of God, I would say, I don't think I want any of this. They are so negative. They are so downcast. They are so much in in love with themselves and the struggles in which they're facing that you can't see their light shining for Jesus. You only see a darkened, gloomy world. And so my encouragement to you this morning, as we look at this passage, is as we close this time out, I want you to leave here recognizing that as a child of God, those of you who have already expressed by faith in Jesus Christ, as a child of God adopted into his family, that you leave here with that kind of mentality, 
that you want to be the light that shines for Jesus Christ? That you want to have a life that draws people to the Savior, Jesus? This morning, I want us to take a look at Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, a great book, of course, Acts, written by Luke, uh, the doctor. Wonderful, wonderful theology all the way throughout the beginning of the church, all the way through. We see the passionate witness for Jesus in those saved believers, those followers of Jesus Christ. But this morning, I want us to look at two men that I believe had such Christ-centered lives that no matter where they were, no matter what events, no matter what circumstances, these two men in this particular circumstance had such Christ-centered lives that they still were able to influence those around them for Jesus. And so let's take a look at that this morning. Acts chapter 16, beginning here in verse 22. We could go all the way back to verse 16, but for time's sake this morning, we're going to begin there in verse 22. Luke writes for us in Acts chapter 16, it says, The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off then and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me this morning? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for a time to meet here together in your house with your people. And God, I pray that you would speak this truth to us this morning and open our ears to hear and our minds to understand and receive by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And God, that you would give us an understanding of how these two men were able to live a type of life that would truly draw others to you and ultimately by your power and provision and your your redemptive um, Uh, redemption from Jesus Christ, that, Lord God, this jailer and his household were saved. God, today I thank you for your word, and I pray that you would just let it just be buried deep within us, Lord God, so that we might know it, memorize it, study it, and apply it in our daily lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
When we take a look at this passage of Scripture here this morning, I want us to realize this is probably a, a passage that you have read and maybe studied over and over throughout your time. And as we consider this, sometimes it begins to be a story that we kind of put in the background because we've heard it so often. But I would like to bring it to the forefront this morning because I think there's some things that we can continuously learn from this passage of Scripture. It's something that I remember all the way back from my childhood as the stories the Sunday school teachers would tell me. And even in my young adulthood, I would see and hear the preachers preach on this passage of Scripture. But it still means so much to me today because I see the power of God at work in people. And so this morning when we think about this... Why were they in prison? Well, I won't go back and read all of this, but when we go back up and see that in chapter 16, verse 16, we see that Paul and Silas were going to a place of prayer. They were there. They were going to share the good news. They were going to pray with those individuals. They were going to help them to understand the truth of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as they were going there, There they came in contact with this demon-possessed girl, this Pythian spirit girl. And what she was doing is she was continuing over and over saying who these men were, that these were men of the Most High God and proclaiming salvation unto you. Well, this was kind of something that, yes, they were doing. But Paul, greatly annoyed with that. Now, wouldn't you like to have been just kind of a side note over here, kind of a fly on the wall, if you will, to see Paul get annoyed about this? I would have. I mean, maybe I'm kind of sick about that. But I think it would have been cool to have watched this girl over and over. These are the men of the Most High God proclaiming salvation unto you. And all of a sudden, Paul just go, that's enough. Stop it. Greatly annoyed is what the scripture says. But then he does something. He doesn't just get annoyed. He exercises the demon in the name of Jesus Christ, which is only the way that it can take place. But I wonder, why was Paul so annoyed? Why was this taking place? Well, I believe there could be several reasons. Yeah, he could have been just annoyed that the girl was following them around, continuing to say the same thing over and over. But I believe there's kind of maybe a bigger picture here. I believe that what was taking place was that Paul and Silas were the true men of God, chosen to go out and continue to spread the gospel message. And yet Satan threw the demon in this girl, who was ultimately used for profit for her masters, was continuing to point out things that were true. Now, we know that Satan disguises himself as the angel of light. There are many truths that Satan proposes for us. The only problem is, is in the same breath that he will speak a truth, he will also speak a lie. And many believers have come to this understanding that they don't know how to distinguish between the two. And so I think that Paul here and Silas were wanting to make sure that as they were going to proclaim the true message of the gospel... They didn't need some demon-possessed girl to come along and try to spread something that could be true at that moment and then in the very next moment, possibly even when they left, be spreading something that was false. 
You see, in our world today, we have to be careful because there are a lot of Christian words thrown around. There are a lot of things that that if we're not careful about, we would say, yes, absolutely, I agree totally with that until the whole phrase is unfolded and we say, wait a minute, something doesn't sound right about that. There's some error in that. We, We hear a little bit of something that doesn't line up with the truth of Scripture. And so we understand that Paul just greatly annoyed. He exercised that demon out of her. And then because of those masters that had been earning money, they didn't care about the girl. They cared about their money. They cared about their profit. And so they came and put them there to those uh, officials there in the area. And they were taken and charged to be beaten and ultimately thrown into the inner prison even in the stocks there in which the jailer had put them in. That's where we found these two men this morning in this story. But how were they able to react in this difficult trial? Let me ask you, how would you react? You were faithful being able to come and and, and to preach the good news. You were faithful to come along and share the truth with those around you. You were going, doing God's work in which he's called you to do. And all of a sudden, being faithful in that, you find yourself being beaten by with rods. You find yourself being thrown into the inner prison. You find yourself ultimately put in stocks, which would spread their legs apart, which would make it very uncomfortable for them. It wasn't just a means of being able to keep them from escaping, but it would cause them great discomfort. I don't know about you, but I'm not into great discomfort. And yet, how did they respond? I love the fact that we can camp out there on verse 25. And we see that, first of all, they prayed. They prayed. Praise the Lord God that in that time of their need, they prayed. But you see, it doesn't tell us. It doesn't describe. I don't know why Luke didn't go into detail here, but it doesn't tell us what they prayed. I have my thoughts and ideas just like you probably have your thoughts and ideas. And I don't want to, I don't want to put into your mind exactly what they prayed because I don't know because the scripture doesn't speak to that. But I don't think they were praying for their comfort. I don't think they were praying for their comfort. Matter of fact, I was, I was thinking that they were praying for ultimately God's will to be done. They were in a sense of so confident in the Lord that they were praying in the middle of their persecution and in their beatings and now ultimately in their stay in prison. You know, this just flies in the face of the health, wealth, and faith movement. Doesn't it though? I mean, do you see any place in this where we could see great health? I mean, we're looking at an inner prison of that day, which was probably rat infested, very dirty, very grimy, grungy. I don't see any health benefits from being in this position. But yet those of the health and wealth would say, if we just believe enough, if we just put our faith and trust enough, then we're going to have that great health. I don't see Paul praying for that great health. I sure don't see great wealth in that unless the Lord God's going to send it down from heaven. They're not in a position to have great wealth. And I don't see where their comfort is that of any value at this point because they're in a place where they are very uncomfortable, but yet they're doing the work of God. You see, here we find that they're not going about the situation complaining. What would most Christians do today? I believe that I'd be complaining. I believe maybe even I would be trying to escape. 
I believe that I would be looking for those opportunities until I really recognize that there is a greater purpose in all this. You see, we have to understand that Paul had already come to that place, and we see it over in Philippians, which was written later by Paul. He has already come to the place where he says, For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. There in Philippians 1.21, he's already given his life away. He already understands that no matter what he goes through, ultimately, even if it's death, it will be gain. There's a confidence here with Paul and Silas. We don't see Paul and Silas bickering back and forth and fighting one another, saying, well, Paul, if you wouldn't have got us into this mess by doing this to this demon-possessed girl, we wouldn't be here tonight. We don't see that. Why? There is a unity in what God had called these two men to do. And they were sold out, confident that the Lord's will would be done. You see, we don't see them even doubting God. Where are you, God? I'm serving you. I'm trying to be faithful. Where are you at in my time of need? Although we may all ask some of those questions at times. But what we do see is two men who are so confident that God will provide. It may not be the way that they would desire him to provide in ultimate release and healing of those wounds on their back and body. But they know and they desire for the Lord's will to be accomplished. You see, I believe that in their time of prayer, we understand that they were coming to that point to where they were so focused on the Lord and so focused on His will to be done that they actually experienced peace. I believe that when we look over to Acts chapter 6 and we see Stephen, there in the face of his persecutors, there being stoned, he was able to forgive them. Why? Because I believe he was so focused on Jesus, his Savior, that all the other things failed. All the other things were clouded over. Paul, there in Philippians chapter 4, if you want to turn there this morning, I believe that we can see that in Paul, later on after he had already, of course, um, uh, been a part of the church there at Philippi, there we have the prison that's in Philippi right now. But in, in Philippians chapter 4, he writes to these believers already experiencing this in times past. Now he's writing something that is very truthful. In other words, we could say that Paul is definitely preaching what he's already practiced. Look at here in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, we often look at that passage of Scripture when we're going through just a little tough times. But I can honestly say I've never looked at that passage of Scripture with stripes on my back from being beaten. I've never looked at that passage of Scripture with my feet in the stocks, keeping me in an uncomfortable position and in a place where I can't uh, uh, be freed. You see, we look at this in difficult times, and it it does have great, great blessings to us when we read that. It gives us us education and, and learning and understanding here. But Paul had already practiced this. He had already experienced this. And so they were confident in the Lord. There's one more thing I'd like to point out about Philippians chapter 4. And there in verse 11 and 12, he talks about that he had to learn the secret 
of being content. And he goes on to say in verse 12 that he's lived with plenty and he's lived without. But he had to learn the secret of being content. I would urge you this morning, learn that secret of contentment. Even in prison, Paul and Silas were learning and experiencing contentment. You say, well, pastor, how do you really know that? Well, first of all, we see them demonstrating that in their prayer. But also, we see them demonstrating this in the next thing that takes place in their praise. Now, we could stop right here this morning and we say, yeah, we don't know what they were praying. They could have been in there going, oh, Lord, help us. Please help us. We're in a terrible uh, place this morning. Help us to get out of this. We don't know. But you see, I think that we can learn something even more valuable about their prayers when we can see their praise. In the middle of their situation, in the middle of their circumstances, they were there praising the Lord. It doesn't matter whether we're on top of the mountain or whether we're in the bottom of the valley. The Lord God is always worthy to be praised. He is always worthy of our praise and thanksgiving. Even in our Sunday school class this morning, we spoke about thanksgiving. Scott did a wonderful job as he expounded on God's word through 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and also Psalm 136. And we consider we ought to be grateful people. But how many of us are grateful in the trials of our life? You see, I don't believe that Paul and Silas let that stinky, rotten, dirty prison skew their view of a holy God. I don't believe that they allowed their circumstances to define them. I believe that they allowed holy God who had called them to a mission of faith and and ultimately sharing the truth of the message of the gospel. In that, they praised God. They rejoiced even. You see... That's hard for us to comprehend. When we think about rejoicing, we look over in James chapter 1 in verse 2 and it says, Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Are you kidding me? Did he really mean that? Absolutely he did. He really meant that because sometimes we stop there on verse 2, but we don't go ahead and read the remainder of those verses where it tells us that our trials absolutely grow us. They, They shape us. They form us. And so even in the middle of our struggles, we can rejoice because God is doing a great work in and through us. Count it all joy when we experience various trials. When we think about Paul and Silas, they would have been in a prison, something like this. Now, this, of course, is a newer picture. But this would have been a prison that would have been something like this. It wouldn't have been our modern-day prison watching TV and sitting back having a, a cool drink. You see, they would have been in the middle of the prison on the innermost part at the very bottom, more like a hole in the ground, which is portrayed here. Their feet would have been in stocks, very uncomfortable. They would have been in a smelly, dirty place, which probably most of the time was filled with the moaning and groaning and cries of pain from other prisoners. And in the middle of that, Paul and Silas were praising God. And rejoicing. Now, it says they were praising 
him with hymns. There probably were some choruses in there too. I mean, I don't know, but if they were theologically correct, I'm sure that there were, there were some choruses in there as well. But the fact of the matter is, is that even in the midst of their dirty, dark, cold, damp prison, they recognized that God was still worthy to be praised, and they were about that. You see, it came from their new perspective. It came from their perspective on who God was and what He was doing in their life. Maybe all of us need a new perspective. So to do that, I'm going to read to you a letter this morning that came from Erwin Lutzer in his book, Failure, the Backdoor to Success. This letter comes helping people to understand, start where you're at. Start where you're at. He included this comical story of whom a co-ed had written the following to her parents. Dear mom and dad, just thought I'd drop you a note to clue you in on my plans. I've fallen in love with a guy called Jim. He quit high school after grade 11 to get married. About a year ago, he got a divorce. We've been going steady now for two months, and we plan to get married in the fall. Until then, I've decided to move into his apartment. I think I'm pregnant. At any rate, I dropped out of school last week, although I'd like to finish college sometime in the future. Now, you could have heard probably a pin drop with those parents when they read this note. But then as they continued on the next page, it said, Hey, Mom and Dad, I just want you to know that everything I've written so far in this letter is false. None of it's true. But, Mom and Dad, it is true that I got a C- minus in French and I flunked my math. It is true that I'm going to need a lot more money for my tuition payments. Maybe some of you have a son or daughter that's in college right now and you're just terrified that you're going to get one of those letters. But you know what? What we really need is a new perspective. We so oftentimes look at our trials instead of looking at our amazing, awesome God who is over all of our trials. Because see, in Matthew, it teaches us that nothing is impossible with God. You see, we have a big God, but yet we look at our problems. And when I think back about Peter walking on the water and I think about, man, he was walking to Jesus. He was experiencing a miracle in the making. And then all of a sudden he saw the wind and the waves and he saw the, the, the things that were discouraging him. And he took his eyes off of Jesus and he placed it on the things of the world. And I believe that's where we are many times. Instead of looking to our Heavenly Father and Jesus who died on the cross for our sins and the Holy Spirit who empowers us and rejoice in the midst of our trials. You see, how do you experience bad situations? Do you find yourself praising God when you have a sick elderly parent? Do you find yourself praising God when you've lost your job? Do you find yourself praising God when in your relationship of 20 years they're filing for divorce? Do you find yourself praising God when you experience the rebellion of a teenager? Or do you find yourself praising God when you yourself have a health problem and you've just come out of the doctor's office and they tell you that you don't have long to live? See, all of a sudden, life gets real. And all of a sudden, we have to ask ourselves, are we going to praise God in our trials? 
Are we going to walk through life giving him all of our life, not just the great mountaintop experiences? See here, I believe we could fill in the blank with whatever it is that maybe you're experiencing, whatever trial you may be going through, but we can still praise God because he is worthy of our praise. I want us to see, though, there's another reason why we can do that is because, look, God was at work. There were some results. Now, if they heard me singing, they probably wouldn't have been listening very close. Matter of fact, if they had their hearing aids, they'd have probably turned them down. But I want us to look back here once again in verse 25 and following. We see, and Luke tells us here in verse 25, he says, but about midnight. By the way, wouldn't you be wanting to sleep about midnight? I know I am. And yet here they're praying. They're praising the Lord. Every time I try to pray after 1030, I'm falling asleep. And yet now we see this this. These two men praying and praising God. And it says, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Now listen, and the prisoners were listening to them. What the word actually means there is to hear with attentiveness. They weren't just hearing those songs. They were listening to those songs. Now, once again, Luke doesn't tell us what they were singing. They may have been singing, I know, I know, the, it wasn't written yet, but they may have been singing Amazing Grace. No, they're probably singing some of the psalms in which they had already knew. But can you imagine being there and hearing their words of praise unto the one and only true God in the midst of their beating, in the midst of their circumstances? And the other prisoners were drawn to their God. Now, we don't know. Luke doesn't tell us as to whether any of these that were in prison were saved. Man, I wish he'd have given us all the, all the, the, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. It doesn't give us that. But I do know one thing. They were listening. They were hearing the truth of who their God was. And so what has been keeping you from praising God? Maybe what circumstances? And then let me ask you, why is it so important to praise God in the middle of our struggles and our trials Why is it so important? Well, let me give you this reason. If this were the only reason it would be good enough is because we've got enough whiners and complainers and moaners and groaners. It would be nice to hear something good after a while, don't you think? But the fact of the matter is I've got one better than that. We're commanded to praise God. It even tells us there in Psalm 66, shout joyfully unto the Lord, sing his praises. You see, we ought to be about more than anybody in this world, no matter what our political struggles are, no matter what our unemployment rate is, no matter what we are struggling with, we ought to be praising God because as children of a loving father, children of people who are filled with the Spirit of God living within us, we ought to live in a way that rejoices. That's what Paul said there in in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice. And then over in 1 Thessalonians, he tells us again, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. We ought to be rejoicing people. Why? It's because Jesus said that he had come to give us life and to give us life so that we could be negative. No. 
He said in John chapter 10, verse 10, He came to give us life and to give us life abundantly. Abundantly. So are we living out an abundant life? I believe that maybe a couple of the instances throughout Scripture that just... That just just grab me, just grip me. If you want to turn there this morning, Job, we won't spend a long time here at all. All I want to do is point out the fact. Look at Job, man alive. We already know in chapter 1, Satan was roaming about. He was looking for someone to test. And, and God allowed him to test Job. Job lost his family. Job lost his, lost his livestock. Job lost everything. But I want us to look in Job chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Now listen carefully here. It says, Then Job, this is after losing everything. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshiped. Now, we don't want to miss out on the fact that, that he didn't just get up and laugh and joke and cut up and smile and everything else. Yes, there was mourning. There was grief. This is what it showed when he, when he tore his clothes off and when he shaved his head. This is true mourning of that, of that day and age. But then he said, or it says, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. He worshiped the Lord. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you. Man, I pray that someday I'm Job. I pray that someday, no matter what the Lord has taken away, I will always remember what he's given. I pray that I can be be that strong and recognize that he is worthy to be worshipped in my life, regardless the circumstances. I don't know whether I'm there yet. If I'm real honest, the Lord has blessed me. I haven't gone through many things in my life. But I pray, I pray with confidence that God will give me that ability to still worship Him no matter what my circumstances. And so far, I've been able to do that only by His grace and only through the power of the Holy Spirit working within me. But I pray and continually pray that God will give me that opportunity, not in a sense of, not in a sense of losing everything, but if that takes place, that God will give me that opportunity through the power of the Holy Spirit living in me that I can still be a witness like Job was. Man, alive, the power in his life to be able to verbalize that he was going to continue to worship the Lord. When we think about that, it brings us to our final thing. I know we've camped out this morning on chapter 16, verse 25. Man, there's a lot of meat there. There was praying going on in the midst of their circumstances. There was praising going on in the midst of their circumstances. Man, the jail, I mean, the, the prisoners were listening. But if we want to go on, I believe there's one last thing, and you can write down on your notes there this morning. They were prepared. How are you prepared? Well, it's because you're in tune with the Holy Spirit. You're not looking at your circumstances. You're truly submitting your life to the power of the Holy Spirit within you. And in the middle of their circumstances, and and mind you, it just gets worse. Look here in verse 26, if we can go ahead and take a look. After the prisoners were listening to them, man, they were having great worship songs. and, And then suddenly there came a great earthquake. Don't you imagine Paul and Silas were like, come on, Lord, and something else. 
I mean, we've been beaten. We've been thrown into prison. Now we're in stocks. We were having a good worship service. And now an earthquake. What else could go wrong? But you see, they weren't looking at it that way. Because they were prepared. They were focused, realizing that God still had a plan and a purpose in the middle of what was taking place. You say, well, pastor, how do you know that? Well, God had already orchestrated everything that had taken place thus far. Now, we don't have time to go back and look at it this morning. But from the beginning of chapter 16, we'll see that they were going through the other region. They were led down to Philippi by a voice that was telling them, come over. We call that the Macedonian call. Come over here and help us. They were not going in that direction. They were not focused on Philippi as being their ultimate goal for their journey. But yet in the middle of that, the Holy Spirit worked and they were led over to the place of Philippi. Man, life. God was doing a work in and of them in their lives, even in what was taking place here. And so they followed the Holy Spirit's leading in that. And they came and they were ready. You see, I believe that that's why we can look back at Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and Paul understands, and we know, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Now, I'm going to stop right there for just a minute because every single person practically that even knows anything about Jesus wants to claim that for themselves. That's false. You see, if we go ahead and we look through verse 28 all the way through the remaining verses of that chapter, we'll see that that is for the called of God. Those are for the sold out, authentic, genuine faith, believing, following Jesus. That's who that promise is for. That is who that writing is for. Paul is saying, we know, we have confidence, we are absolutely assured that God causes all things. Not that all things are good in and of themselves, but God causes all things to work together for good. So my friend, wherever you're at today, maybe you're in a struggle and you're, you can't see the things that God is doing behind the scenes. All you see is the tragedy. All you see is the suffering. All you see is the pain. But believe you me, God is at work. He has still got a plan and a purpose. No matter what trial we go through, matter what struggle we go through, God is at work. He has a purpose in our suffering. That's a whole nother sermon. But the fact of the matter is, is we see some astounding things that take place right here. In verses 26 through 32, we see that they are ready. Yeah, I'd have been ready too. I'd have been ready to get out of there if my chains would have been loosened up. I mean, can you imagine? I'd already been beaten. I'd already been put in the prison. I'd already been hearing, having to hear Silas sing, which is horrendous. I'd be ready to leave. But they weren't ready to escape. They were ready to stay and fulfill the plan and purposes of God. How do we know that? Look at what takes place. We have a jailer that comes in in verse 27, thinking that everybody has fleed. And if we want to understand a little bit of the background of that, he had every right to be concerned. 
Because when we think about a Roman jailer, if his prisoners escaped, then ultimately he was going to be killed because the same thing was going to take place to him. There was a responsibility that he had. If you don't believe me, go back and look into Acts chapter 12 verse 19 and see what took place with the jailers when Peter was freed from prison. They were killed. You see, the fact of the matter is that jailer had every reason to be concerned. But he was going to do the dirty deed himself and commit suicide so that he wouldn't have to suffer the pain, the grief, the humiliation. He was going to take the easy road. And about that time, Paul yelled out. Man, can you imagine being a fly on the wall right there? Paul yelled out, hey, we're all here. (laughs) And as it echoed through that innermost part of the prison, I can only imagine what that jailer must have thought. Those were probably some of the sweetest words he had ever heard in his life. Because as he was about to kill himself, all of a sudden there was hope. There was hope of something greater. And so then in verse 29 through 30, we see that the jailer asked them a very pointed question. I wish Luke would have described all the details of what the jailer meant. But maybe he didn't fully understand what the jailer meant. But he did ask the pointed question, What shall I do to be saved? Man, that's a great question. As an evangelist, I would love for everybody that I meet to say, Tar, what can I do to be saved? Well, let me tell you. Let's turn over here to the scripture and let's get it filled out real quick. But the fact of the matter is, are we really ready for people to ask us that question? Are we really prepared to tell them the truth of what God's Word teaches? Or would you stumble and stammer around and say, Hey, our church service starts at 1030 and our pastor can greatly tell you about how to be saved. Or do you come to the point where you say, Man, you know your neighbor, if you could just feed them some cookies, that will probably do it. Do you know what it takes to be saved? Paul and Silas, man, they didn't hesitate. They didn't hesitate one bit. That was like, that was like a, a, an open door right there. What shall I do to be saved? And immediately, not only were they ready to be able to stay and fulfill God's purposes, but they were also ready to share. Look at the response there in verse 31. Verse 31, they said, simply believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Now, I want to make sure and just give a caveat there on that last part. But did you hear it? Very simple. Not overcomplicating it. Anybody here ever overcomplicated the gospel trying to share it with somebody? Man, I have. And I just, I hate that. They're just begging for the simple truth of how to be saved. And I'm going on with theology, man. I mean, I want to tell them the truth of where it all originated in the Garden of Eden, all the way through Revelation, Jesus coming back. They didn't need the whole fire hydrant. They just needed the simple truth of the gospel. And they were ready to give it. They were ready to share the truth. Now, I said I was going to give a caveat. No one is saved by tagging along on the coattails of their parents. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He has children. 
We are adopted into his family by his grace through Jesus Christ and our faith in response to what Jesus has done. That is the only way. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And we don't have time for an evangelism training right now. Stephen can do a greater job at that. What we need to see, though, is they were ready to give the immediate understanding of the answer to the question. But what it did mean is that they got to go back in verse 32 and tell the rest of his family. Look, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. Man alive, they didn't get to just share with one person, but he was so excited, he brought them back and they got to share with the whole bunch. And you know what? The whole bunch understood. And the whole bunch placed their faith in Jesus that very day. How do we know that? Is because in that next verse, we see that he and his whole house were baptized. Baptism doesn't save one single person. But baptism is evidence that your life has been radically changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Your life has been changed because you are now born again. And baptism is that symbol to show of that inner change. It is when God turns your heart of stone into a heart of flesh through the work of the Spirit, and you come to faith in Jesus because of what He's done for you. And at that moment, you're a child of God, and then you are baptized so that everyone else can see that you're professing Jesus as not only Savior of your life, but Lord of your life. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And then we find the last part. They were ready, ready, ready to rejoice. There in verse 33 and 34, we see that they were all baptized. And then he brought brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Guys, I want us to just focus for just one minute and take a look at this story with fresh new eyes and recognize that in the midst that God used Paul and Silas in an unusual place, a prison, at an unusual time at midnight. You should be asleep at midnight. That's just all there is to it. You should be asleep unless you're working. At an unusual time in an unusual place situation here when we see the event of the earthquake ultimately to reach an unusual convert and that is the jailer so my question is to you are you aware that God may be bringing about some unusual events in your life to be putting you in an unusual place in an unusual time but he still has a plan and purpose He still has a plan to use you so that you might shine your light so that others may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Would you pray with me?